I've been to your website, which is hakanlibdo.com. That's H A K A N L I D B O dot com. And I've been to your other website for Rumti then, which is R U M T I D E N dot com, right? Rumti then. Space time in uh, Swedish. Exactly. So I've been stalking some of your work and doing some research. I have some idea of what you're up to, uh, but in creative work, in, in design, it's always about iteration and evolution. So I'm wondering, what is the current iteration or the like today's version, if you will, of how you define what you do? Uh, it's something that I'm, which is my probably my most difficult uh, task to find a simple way to phrase what I'm doing. Uh, I mean, there are concepts like uh, um, design fiction, critical design, stuff like that. But it's not exactly that. I, I think it's easier maybe to define what I what I'm not um, or what I don't do. So Rumtiden is this place which is a workspace and a laboratory and a gallery and a workshop uh, all at the same time in the same place. But it's, it's not a startup. Um, it is. I have a company who's sort of taking care of the day-to-day business and paying the rent and stuff like that. Uh, but but it's not a startup in the sense that uh, I have people employed. Uh, I have one actually, but uh, who's not part of sort of developing product in that way. Uh, and there is no business plan, and there is no structure, and there are no uh, software to organize our job. It's more is super organic. There is no uh, well, almost well the people that uh, work here worker for no rent, which is also a very strange idea. And I can honestly say that I'm not working uh, primarily for profit, but I'm trying to, as good as I can within the system that we live, to regard my um, capital as the time that I have. Time is a much better measurement of, of money than money, in one way. Uh, so I'm trying to optimize the time that I have, so I can as much as possible do what I enjoy doing the most. But of course, it's a balance because I do have to pay the rent. But by doing what I like to do and encouraging my colleagues to find out what they enjoy to do the most, we sort of attract people, sometimes with money, that can afford projects that uh, need our special skills. But I think it's a much more fruitful way to go forward and to to have a business plan and to try to figure out what you know what need could we uh, could we fulfill or what product should we make it's much more uh, investi- more a path of in- investigating and not research in an academic sense but still sort of research what makes us happy and fulfilled by doing it and what results do we come up with by doing it so design fiction in the sense that we Make things. We always try to value the products that we. If we because we get a, we get a few requests and we have many ideas, but we choose to. Mainly, I'm trying to sort of direct uh, what we do, so we primarily do things that we haven't done before, meaning that we are like always amateurs. Instead of seeing work as work, which is uh, if you, if you analyze like most human lives in in most societies. You divide it into four phases where you first play and then you learn and then you work 
and then you relax when you retire. So you have these four phases. But I think that's a very stupid idea. And it's built on a rigid old system that we could rethink. So if a working day could be all these things, that is work, but also play and also learning uh, and also not working. And if you find the right blend in that and, and still achieve interesting things, I think that's a much better motivation than any business, business plan that you can have. This is very exciting, very interesting. Mm. Uh, and it makes me very curious. Like, So you're leading this space or group of people or both, I guess, mm. which is called Room Tiden, uh, which is yeah. all of these things that you said. It's a gallery, it's a co-working space, it's an artist space, it's a, it's a mm. company and so on and so forth. Exactly what facilities are you providing these people? How did you structure uh, this platform? Well, the structure is that there is no structure. Uh, I think that the the structure that we um, that we uh, sort of uh, normally use in order to have some sort of order or more profit in our organization, again, that is built on ideas that we just take for granted. I mean, the normal drill is that you have an organization, you have a company, um, and you have a need to fulfill. You have a like a a cog to, to put in in order to make uh, whatever you're doing. You need a uh, you need a designer. You need a sp- special engineer with some special skills. So you um, need a marketing person, uh, and then you end up with a bunch of people that you know. You have a bank, and you have one person who's specialized in moving, uh, you know, working with uh, foreign foreign currencies in Southeast Asia. Uh, and that are very, very specialized skill. Uh, I, I believe that every person ha- is a, like a treasure of so many unexploited skills. So it's just a waste of human resources that that person should only work, not only work uh, with only finances, but only work with a specific branch of finances. Maybe that person at the same time is really good with children and maybe plays the electric guitar. Maybe you can, you know, gardening. <laughs> I don't know what. Um Maybe things that actually could have a value, but we define ourselves so much uh, in our working life, so we limit ourselves, uh, checkbox ourselves. Whereas I think a, a much better organization would be one without a plan. And uh, um, of course, you should, I mean, you're supposed to do things, but take like Nokia, for example, who made started making rubber boots and then made. Uh, cellular phones so that's a bit different uh, mindset or you know Elon Musk who's take you know I don't know exactly if there are the same engineers that built PayPal that now build rockets maybe not but there's something if you have engineers or people that are good at doing things then you can do something else with the same people or, or the same organization so I think a much better model for a company would be one that uh, is a platform for people with talents that to do stuff and then the, the organization is built from the people rather than that the people are uh, uh, employed to fit the organization. So that's some sort of vision that I have. And of course, this is a very, very small scale, but it's, um, it's an experiment to see if is it possible to... to um, things, I, I almost never had a job, you know, so <laughs> I, um, I, I never really liked it in any organization, maybe because I... Have problem taking orders if they 
for, I don't agree, especially because you can say that the only real job I had for a while I worked on a record label. So then it's a question of what musical taste you have. So I found myself working in music where I didn't, didn't enjoy that much. Uh, I shouldn't complain because it was, you know, it's a pretty cool job. But um, otherwise, I almost never had a job because I think it's very difficult for me to... Um, again, I, I think it's these sort of hierarchies that we always use to organize ourselves has so many, uh, so many problems. And it's such an ancient way to to organize ourselves. I mean, you have the general on the top who tells the other commanders and then further and further down and finally the lieutenants and the foot soldiers get their orders. And that's a brilliant organization if you're at war because you have things have to be done and you can't have a debate or a, collect the union and have a discussion over a cup of coffee when the enemy is shooting at you. Then it's very good to have a general saying, run to the hill and kill the enemy. Uh, but the thing is, at least, I mean, in the world since the biggest thing that has happened since the 1970s, that Earth is pretty much at peace. I mean, before that, it was war everywhere. But now it's almost everywhere there is peace. So, but we still organize, organize ourselves as armies. Um, so I'm thinking maybe there, there could be another model that is much more modern, that is much more dynamic and it's, uh, you know, more sort of... Um, uh, like, like a, you know, like a flock of birds organize themselves. So it's not that they, well, some birds actually ducks. They have a perfect V formation. They choose that strategy like a Roman group of soldiers, but like starlings, it's just like a cloud of birds that go everywhere. And there's this um, sort of dynamic model that I think would be a much better model for a, for a company, like a blob. So if there's... Hmm. You know, a person with certain skills, then the whole company or the whole organization adapt to that person because it would be a much better way to uh, let as much of a person's skills uh, be useful. And you get happier person, and I think in the end you get a much more effective uh, organization. These are extremely interesting ideas to me, and uh, these are also ideas that I think about a lot. And I really think we're on the same page in terms of um, believing in the same motivations or the same kinds of uh, needs, I think. You know, we are at peace now and imagination yeah. and creative work really is what matters in this case. So what are some some structures or non-structures that optimize for being as effective and as productive as possible in creative work rather than uh, in responding to risks or responding to war? I think that's a very worthwhile analysis to do. Uh, but what I face in practice is that, I mean, there are a lot of practical concerns. Uh, if, if, you, if you try to organize a group of people to work on some kind of creative pursuit, you know, at the end of the day, it's always the case that we all want to have food on our tables. We don't want to go hungry. We don't out want our families to go hungry. A lot of individuals, a lot of people are going to prioritize their survival and the, the comfort of their families and themselves over a lot of creative pursuits. And you see it in psychology also. You know, we, we the, the, the uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for example, which is a hierarchy, uh, interestingly, Hmm. is is a very well-known model in psychology where 
you have your base needs of security and food and uh, safety and so on. And then after those are satisfied, you can move on to your your social sort of needs and then your self-actualization or creative needs. So I'm super curious how you manage to navigate those practical concerns of how do you actually get paid for doing this kind of creative work and how do you organize a, a some kind of platform where your collaborators can all all benefit you can all sort of uh, get compensated for doing this work i think this though the answer to this is probably hidden in another question that i want to ask you which is your story so this is one thing that we actually didn't have time to discuss when we met earlier and uh, i'm extremely curious about it so i did some research and in my research also i didn't find it i i, I didn't see it on your website i stalked your profile on linkedin and i didn't see anything about your uh, education for example so would you be so kind to tell me the story of your life and uh, the story of your okay. formative years and experiences and uh, of your younger self well, okay, let's start with that question. Um, uh, the question, what kind of education, is very easy because I have none. Uh, I, I can uh, I can barely read and write, but uh, that's pretty much it. So I actually, well, I think I spent one semester at the university to read art history, but that was because I was I had to get this studio stu- um, uh, this scholarship, this loan that you can get in Sweden, because I had a drum machine that I really wanted, so I took the money. And bought my green drum machine. I started a little bit of history as well, but uh, I very, have very little education. I almost never had a job, uh, and the background is not super exciting. Maybe that's what you why you can't find anything on the on the, because a very uh, typical small town, uh, slightly outside the city of Malmo, where I grew up, and then I moved into Malmo, where I spent. Well, I lived until I was uh, thirty, something like that. And then I moved to Stockholm. Uh, in Malmo, I was uh, involved in like punk or post post punk scene, a lot of music, fan scenes, arranging concerts, stuff like that. Um, a little bit of art. Uh, then I moved to Stockholm, working on a record label uh, when the record industry was booming in the nineties, uh, and I got really fed up with that because I never had a job. So even that job was that was I mean that was a dream job. So I'm a very stupid person why I quit, but. I did um, uh, to start my own uh, musical career. So I worked with that from uh, late, like 1999 or 98, and for another 10 years. So I uh, I was DJing and producing music and playing, touring the world. And then I got, I mean, within this musical scene, I very often got fed up with myself. So I was uh, very difficult to specify as an artist if you google you also get very confused about that Hmm. part of my life because i as soon as you know one musical genre was going okay then i got fed up and moved to the next by when i when my main um, activities or my life circle around making music then i found out that first of all that um I didn't have to be faithful to any record label. In those days, music was not to have your own, uh, you know, YouTube channel or record yourself when you play covers on the guitar. It was record labels and records that you bought, bought in a record store and put it on a record player. So it was very physical, and there was a business around it. 
but and my colleagues who were making some sort of alternative electronic music were like uh, very grumpy about the, that you could never get a you know the scene in Sweden was so poor and people didn't understand it was no money uh, because they stuck to one label but I was not faithful to anyone so the first like the week after I quit my job at the record label I had a ticket going to the UK so I went to London and Manchester and Brighton and met a few record labels and that was my f- sort of start of my international musical career and then when I get foot up with that then I went to Berlin and started to release some records there and then to North America and uh, US and Canada and then Japan so finally I had a sort of I was signed to like 25 record labels at the same time and releasing one vinyl record every second week some there was some article someone had made some research and found out that I was the artist in the world re- releasing most records <laughs> um, because it was literally one new record every second week today is very easy to do that just post it but in that case we in that time we had to make the physical record in the factory and have distribution and and all that it was a bit more complicated and expensive of course so one thing that I found is that um, you know look for opportunities wherever they might be uh, so if I made a you know a strange song and the first record label that I sent it to said now nah, we can't release that then instead of saying oh maybe there's something wrong with me with the product uh, I was more thinking maybe it's, the fault could be the record label or the f- fault could be um, the scale that I start with a sort of more prestigious English record label and they said no then I'm convinced that if I like the track there is someone in the world who has an obscure label that would like to release it maybe in Japan maybe in Australia maybe in Argentina I don't know but uh, by extending my network I could uh, you know release from like club hits to very strange sound experiments at the same time and that also um, gave me the sort of confidence that if I took interest in some sort of new musical style then um, I could do it, even though I wasn't established within that music. I remember when I wanted to make, I, I, there was like a second wave of, of English house music. The first house music from, uh, from Chicago had a certain sound and then it, was, uh, then it sort of died off and it became kind of obsolete. But then in the early or like mid, mid-90s, it came back in the UK with another sound, and which I liked a lot. So... And I didn't, I didn't have a clue how to do that. But I, I was in London, so I asked the guy in a record store, um, "What's going on right now?" And uh, he gave me a little pile of, of uh, records that I bought. So I took them home and I pretty much carbon copied uh, one of the songs. You know, in my way, it was a remix that I did, and that became like top ten on the UK club chart. But I never made that music before, so it's um, you could say that the the, um, the way music works. Uh, it's a really good platform to to learn these things that it's not about, in this case, not so much about education or experience. It's more the belief that if I can do one thing, then I can do something else as well. It's more about, it's not the knowledge in itself, but it's, it's the, no, the knowledge that things can be done. And that very often follows the same process, I think. I'm not saying that writing a song and making records falls the same process as building a rocket, but um, and I could probably not build a, build a rocket. But within my little skill sets, there are more things that I can do than just making songs. 
in that career, you know, I, I released um, hundreds and hundreds. Uh, to, till today, I think my CV is 350 records. So it's quite a, what, quite a bit. After a while, I got fed up with myself, you know, because, uh, I, I mean, club music, uh, at the same time, be very repetitive and very boring if you li listen with those ears in the wrong context. But at the same time, with really big loudspeakers and cr in a place that it's crammed with people, it can be the most fantastic music there is. But still, I got a bit fed up for myself. So I started to um, do some side projects with um, that connected to um, non-musical ideas. For example, I made a project where I commissioned mus musicians to create music that was sent in space, sent up in space, from the uh, the thirteen meter antenna at S Range Space Station in northern Sweden, and that was meant as a business card from Humanity, uh, created by electronic musicians, uh, which I think was there was a uh, this golden disc that was sent curated by Carl Sagan in the seventies on the Voyager uh, probes. Uh, so it's like it was like a reference to to that thing. If we should communicate to to another possible civilization, I think it's a good idea to send music. And Carl Sagan's project, including mainly music, actually, so it's something that is very significant for us humans. Um, so I think it's a good idea. But also, who has the right to decide what is the quality music to send? And in that case, it was Carl Sagan and his team. They picked some, you know, some Beatles and some Chuck Berry, but a lot of Beethoven and stuff, some indigenous music to make some sort of footprint from humanity. But giving this enormous task to small uh, electronic musicians in their basements was a nice uh, assignment, I think, because it, the, the question is so big. So I made a few projects like that with, um, in this case, with the Swedish corporate, uh, Space Corporation, but also with uh, ethnologists in one project, two projects, actually. Did one with remix bird sounds with ornithologists. I made one about national grief. What music should be playing on the radio if, if in this case Sweden is hit by a national disaster, like the murder of Prime Minister Olaf Palme in the eighties, or, uh, or the Estonia when that went down. So then you sort of cut all the normal transmission and replace that with only information about what happened and very sad music, always written by dead guys. So we redid that uh, too. And then that's also a very big question. How do you create music today that will give a na the comfort to a nation? And by doing these kind of projects, you know, I uh, did one project where I gave synthesizers to the, to the uh, monkeys of Stockholm Zoo to explore if they had any musical skills, which they absolutely didn't. They're really bad at playing anything. Um, so, so I did, did different musical experiments that sort of brought me away from just making records. Doing that, then I realized that it was more fun. It, it was difficult, you can say that. And it's much more fun to do something difficult than something that is easy. And I'm pretty good at making club music. That's the only thing that I'm good at, actually. I, I mean, I can make, you know, at that time I made a record in, I could make a, a song in less than one hour. It was still pretty good because I was very experienced. And it's a very, very short distance between the idea and the performance, what, what comes out. Because it's, of course, you don't need to rehearse. It's, it's loudspeaker-based music. And the tools allows you to work really fast. 
in that way, it's interesting to to have that expression connected with, uh, like, you know, for example, architecture. That's a, a, an art form where you it will come up with an idea, and maybe ten years later, there's a house. So it's a very slow process. The house will probably last much longer than, than the song, but it's uh, uh, yeah, this uh, uh, relation is quite interesting. Or working with space, for example, we have a time frame that is just ridiculous compared to the length of the song or, or the length of the uh, the creative process. But back to the topic, um, doing these um, sort of stretching the ideas, how to make music and um, putting music in different new contexts led me to the conclusion that um, maybe I shouldn't make music at all. Maybe more finding out what music could be except what it already is. So then I had my first employee who was uh, just by accident, I was proposed to have uh, as an intern, this guy who was uh, uh, more of an engineer. And we started building things. And one of the first things that we built was a tennis game for blind people where you play, where you play with uh, uh, sounds and music instead of a ball. You play between uh, four speakers on, on a court, physical court. And then the net has an infrared reader and the, the tennis racket, so to speak, have infrared beamers that shine in all directions. So uh, you track the position of the, um, of, of the player uh, and then the movement of the sort of the infrared dot that the computer sees in the moment where the virtual ball is there will sort of determine the trajectory of this virtual ball, which is the sound. But it's, it's a very cool thing that you can actually play with the sound in the physical room. We did this project in collaboration with the blind people. If you are seeing, then you have a great disadvantage compared to the, those who cannot see. Uh, so you play blindfolded, and that will improve your uh, your skills significantly. But it's, I mean, I played with this guy who sort of was completely blind. He clicked his way through the room to understand the room. Um, I didn't have a chance, of course. And I was, you know, I played that game more than anyone else. Um, but that's an interesting thing. What then a game for blind becomes music because music creation was a part of the of the game. So with this, um, this my first employee who helped me with that, um, I also realized that this is much more fun because it's difficult. So we started to do um, different projects where the, where most of them actually explored what music could be except what it already is putting music in new, new contexts. If you make a song, you don't, you don't make a drawing or have your post-its and you have, your, have a board meeting to discuss a song. I hope not. Maybe, maybe you dream it, maybe you stand in the shower and it just comes to you. Uh, it's very much your imagination that will create this. I would say that uh, almost all the projects that I've done since then, they don't come from a need or, or something like that. It comes from an from idea that just pops up and sometimes even from a dream, to be honest. I mean, the, the tennis, the sound tennis game, that actually came from a dream. So that's kind of, kind of strange process. I think Tesla didn't have, didn't he have that thing that he was a dreaming of machines and then he woke up and had to scribble them down. Yeah, so in that way, that's my background, how music and the, the freedom of creating music uh, gave me, not skills in that way, but gave me some sort of confidence in my in this way of thinking that I still think is a very fruitful way to, to do things. 
Uh, I make quite a few projects that are maybe uh, different than uh, than most other ones. And that is, I think it's very much because I have this artistic background. And there are many benefits about that. I mean, the, the, the most important thing about being an artist is that you, um, you're very much allowed to fail. So you went from uh, mm. being a musician and music production producer and uh, being involved with music to various artistic projects and installations, collaborating with uh, individuals with other cap capacities. I'm mm. still curious about how you went from that into uh, founding and leading Rumti then, which is a space and a group of people, uh, yeah. and also expanding your collaborations and uh, collaborating with so many other sort of capacities, engineers and other artists and so on, and also working with a very long list of clients, uh, which involves a lot of household names, I think. Uh, I'm actually looking at your client list right now and I see hmm. corporations like Volvo and Electrolux and uh, Volkswagen and Spotify and LinkedIn. So how do you go from those artistic projects to a platform and extended collaborations and then uh, to these clients? Well, I was, um, you know, this place that I have here had a, a first iteration that started more like a um, normal uh, like a startup hub where me and uh, a guy that uh, was one of the founders of Propellerheads, a music software company. Uh, we started this place and then we have some people sitting here, filmmakers and um, uh, well, di different kinds of, of uh, smart people. Simone Yatz, uh, who's uh, the queen of shitty robots, did her First, uh, she started here doing stuff, uh, which was also inspiring, the, you know, doing pointless things, which I've always been doing. But uh, it sort of changed from people making games that was supposed to be product to more arty people coming here. And But what happens then is that uh, it was like an office, but with a complete mess. Uh, office with tons of, uh, you know, uh, uh, boxes with stuff and impossible to find anything at all so i was i was thinking for a long time how is it possible to um first of all to make a, a workspace that is not fixed that is uh, that is that sort of where you can challenge and experiment with the very fundaments that we use to uh, for to, to shape how we live that is i mean you sit on a chair by a desk and you have your shelf behind you where you're, you have your your pictures that are framed very neatly. But if you have a space, well, this is, you can't see from here, but this space is built on, um, is, is uh, like three-dimensional thinking. So it's not uh, a flat space that stands on, on a flat floor and then uh, that is made for, you know, where you keep your laptop and, you, and yourself uh, in which you put other things. But everything could be everything. It's more like a, it's a Lego idea. So we have this framework that could fit really anything. I have to admit that we can't make shares because they're, I mean, we can, but they won't be any nice to sit in. Uh, that's pretty difficult. Uh, so those are just bought. But the rest is something that we build ourselves and it's changing over time all the time. So uh, the, the idea was first, can one make a place that is not made for a specific thing that we do right now, but is flexible, like we, like we talked about before, that if there is a new person coming in who has another need, 
then we'll just rebuild everything, maybe reconstruct something that we have or build something new or deconstruct something that we have. So it's um, come, can become an uh, ongoing process. But also, even more, I was thinking that, you know, where do these these ideas come from? My own ideas and the creative people that I'm surrounded with. How do we come up with these ideas? This is only, I mean, of course, it is chemistry. It's what, what input we have and that we store in our brain and we make some sort of connection, logical or just in, intuitive connections, and we, you know, it, out come something, something new. But um, I have this belief, and the more I think of it, the more I'm convinced that we, we have a serious problem in our world, and that is that we don't train creative thinking. I mean, we think we do it, but we training means that you actually do it. It's not that you go and go to seminar and listen to someone who was successful with their company on a new idea. Uh, we also have this idea that one person can come up with one business idea and that's it. You come up with this great idea and you do business and you become rich and then you play golf. But I think that, that there is an idea-making skill. There is like a sense that you can train. Like if you're a long jumper, you use your legs and your body and then you become better at that. But I also think that there is a, and the amazing thing with the human body physically is that the more you train, the better it gets. If you have a car, the more you drive, the worse it gets because you wear down the, the car. But if the human body is the other way, if you train, you use it, it becomes better. But the brain is exactly the same. And we, we don't, I see that uh, it's very rarely that someone is exercising the idea making skills. And I, th I don't think we're even in, in contact with that. So maybe some people with, uh, you know, uh, that are more artistic, so their thinking patterns surprise us. Then you think, oh, that's brilliant, you know, because that person is artistic. But I think it's maybe because it's slightly different than we see it, that there is something that, I mean, there's a very definite connection. If a long jumper is training really hard for, uh, for the Olympics, and you will see that long jumper, you know, jump maybe two decimeters longer because of this training. It's a strong correlation. But you never see, uh, you know, a long jumper coming uh, into the Olympic arena from direct from McDonald's in a taxi and just, you know, jump really long because it's it takes a lot of persistence and it takes more, most of all, you know, on top of all these physical and mental training, it takes so many jumps to be able to jump long. But still, we think that, you know, we... We collect, this, we collect this meeting with some people that normally, you know, sit down and do different things. And today it was going to be creative. We hired a speak, guest speaker from I don't know where. And then we expect people to be creative. And I don't think we can do that. It's just like, you know, taking the whole Volvo office out to the arena and, you know, expect that they should be really long jumpers. They're not good. I mean, because they don't do that. So how do we expect people to be good at creativity or new ideas when we don't practice? You arrived at a very interesting place now because, uh, I, I mean, you also passed through some very interesting subjects like music. Because, I mean, I, I used to be a musician and DJ in a previous life, and I was nowhere near as successful or productive as you are. I was maybe 1% uh, as productive as you are. So I'd like to have that conversation on a, on a separate day, maybe, because there's hundreds of things that I'm curious about in that in that domain of your life or your experience. Um, but you arrived at a very interesting place now, which is uh, talking about training and education. I was doing a bit of research on your work, 
and I came across something you said, which resonated with me a lot because I come from a family with a lot of teachers and educators. Uh, my mother was a teacher, my grandmother, my grandfather were all teachers and uh, school administrators. I also find a lot of fulfillment myself when I get to wear the hat of the educator when I'm lecturing or when I'm teaching. I just really love that. So I was listening to your TEDx talk in Stockholm, uh, it, which was about imagination as the world's most poorly exploited natural resource, uh, which is an interesting in it, title in itself. But in that talk, as you introduced the subject, you said something very interesting. You said, if I was the prime minister, there would be a subject in school called imagination. So in, in schools today, we do have subjects like arts and music and literature. These are courses that are taught. Uh, and you said you didn't have any interesting education, but I do uh, assume that you went through the mandatory education. You went to high school, to primary school, and you've been exposed to these subjects and this kind of education. Uh, when I went to school, I also took courses on, I was, I was fortunate to be able to take courses on creative writing and photography and uh, filmmaking and web design. And uh, there are also other courses and degrees that we can pursue. Uh, if we want to learn design or other kinds of creative work, it's possible to go to university and do degrees on these things. With regard to your own experience, so if you think about your own experience with education and how you encountered these ideas, these subjects in school and how you engage with them, when you compare that with the imagination class that you would mandate as uh, the prime minister or the minister of education, what would your imagination class look like? How would it be different from uh, the classes in, on art and music and literature and other creative things that are today already existing in our schools? That's a super difficult question because um, schools, more than maybe um, most structures, are very much much based on very old system. I mean, if you look at the the way a school looked uh, uh, hundreds or even thousand years ago, and the way it looks today, the, the structure of that there's the teacher, and then you have students with a face in the other direction, and they listen to what the teachers say, and then after one hour they leave the room and go to the next teacher who talks about something else, and or another grown up comes in and talks about something else. That is a very strange way of learning. Um, if you look uh, at the way kids play, because the, when you play, then you learn. You you know you build a virtual or imaginary pirate ship or something. It is. It never looks like that. That's a soldier structure. You know, the general tells the soldiers what to do. Then they listen. They stand in straight lines, and then they execute. So. Um, what a, a good school would look like, I don't have a clue, because I'm a soldier as well. I also grew up listening to the generals, which my, you know, my teachers. In that case, you know, we have to imagine something that is, we have to sort of question or dissect so many structures uh, first before we can find out what a good ed education would be. But if you just look at it, then you realize that... Uh, it could be so much different. I have a friend of mine who uh, in New York uh, and who, who works with you know child communication, child literature, TV. He's very good with kids, and he's got kids as well. And his kid, they don't go to school. In in the US, you're allowed to do that. They have homeschooling, but not because they're Mormons or anything like that, but because they they don't believe in the education system. So the parents 
is because this is New York, you know, so there are a lot of alternative people, but enough people to with kids so they can organize themselves. So they don't learn anything like that, but they have a, a system. So all the kids always go somewhere with other kids every day with different parents, uh, either to museums or they go and play things or they go and build things. But uh, uh, if a system is so bad, so uh, the guy that I respect the most when it comes to knowing kids doesn't even want to put his kids in school, you know, then there is something wrong. Uh, it's very difficult to, to understand what it is because we all went there. We all raised the same way. But if you're standing outside, you realize that nah, there is many things that could be improved in this place. But unfortunately, as the whole planet has adapted to the whole system, I mean, there was a time not so long time ago when, when if you, you know, if you went to Africa or you went to South America or went to Asia or the Nordic countries, you will find not only different systems of society, but different belief system. Of what, I'm not talking about religion, but what, what is important in life and what, what, uh, what are the purposes? Uh, some places, maybe it is to become rich and defy our enemy. Some sometimes it's to, to please God, or maybe it's to be one with nature, or maybe to be humble. Um, it could be a completely different thing. Worship the sun, I don't know. But um, now we have we all pray to the same God. We all accept the same system. So it's super difficult to, to find a solution how to make another school when the whole planet have adapted the traditional school. So, um, but the good thing about being an artist, except for the fact that you can uh, make mistakes, is that you don't have to have the answers. You ask the questions. <laughs> That's my job, you know. That's a nice job to have. Uh, but on the subject of boxes and categories and how we restrict our thinking, uh, one thing caught my attention, which is that when I asked you about how you describe your work today, you spoke about design fiction. When I looked at your website and your presentations and previous um, descriptions of what your work is about, I see a lot of different words which are very interesting and exciting. I see that you uh, use the word imagination a lot. Uh, you, you use art, ideas, engineering, science, technology, architecture, prototyping, uh, and the most uh, interesting for me of them all, applied futurism. Uh, are all words that I find on your website and in your presentations. What's interesting to me is that there's a word that almost never occurs, and this is, it was the first time today that I heard it for, from you, which is design. Uh, and this is despite the fact that uh, I see that a lot of work that you do actually builds on intentions and tactics that other people present as design in other, other works. And I would have no problem classifying what you do as design. Uh, but you do not use this word in your, in your written descriptions, in, your, uh, in how you talk about your work. Is this a deliberate choice? Do you avoid the word design for a reason? No, I, I wouldn't say that. I think I used it in some other context. Um, but maybe something about my background uh, coming from like, you know, post-punk small town Sweden, that design <laughs> has a ring to me that is some, something, uh, you know, you, you give shape to a thing that works perfectly well, but then you charge three times the price because mm -hmm. it, it looks nice. Same, you know, I have a Mac, I have an iWatch, I have all this. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, I'm part of design as well. But there's something, maybe that I don't like that word 
that much because mm. if it's designed for the design sake, um, like cosmetic, um, uh, I mean, a human is much more interesting than the makeup. Uh, and a Bauhaus building where you can see, you know, the, the very construction of the the building is much more interesting than maybe, uh, you know, uh, something from th that is 200 years older with a lot of decoration that is meant to uh, sort of some sort of magic that you don't so you don't really know the construction of the house. But it's something very appealing about uh, to design things for what they are and uh, trying to, I mean, it could be designed for the purpose of uh, explaining how to interact with them or telling a story or evoking a, an emotion, but just to design like makeup. Uh, I don't like that so much. Um, for example, this place is, uh, is some sort of non-design, which I like. So they, there's, the construction is only there for, for its purpose. So it's not that I made a drawing and, you know, so they should look specific, specifically funky or uh, pleasing. But um, this is the, like the, it's pure construction. And even though if I, I mean, my, my helmets and pro projects behind me, they, of course, they have some sort of design, but this is more maybe to, to tell a story or to prove a point, uh, which also makes them more interesting. Um, so, uh, and, uh, and also as, as uh, which I maybe haven't mentioned, but, uh, so sort of driving force or a goal when it comes to the stuff that we do here, uh, except that it should be new. Uh, hopefully it hasn't been done before. Uh, I think good design, if you call it that, is something that is many things at the same time. So if you ask, what is it? Is it, is it art? Yes, it is. Is it like a f thing you can work with in your everyday life? Yes, it is. Is it a music instrument? Yes, it is. Because if we can be all these things at the same time, then I think you achieve something because we... Um, we have a lot of things that are like single purpose units only, except this one, which is like all purpose unit, uh, making, making everything for us. And then, of course, then we have a lot of space that we can fill with more pointless things. I had something that I wanted to share with you and to discuss with you, actually, and you have led me right exactly to that point, uh, which is that which this is and this is actually one of the fundamental uh, reasons or one of the challenges that we're aiming at with design discipline, this, uh, this series of podcasts and resources, uh, this is that when we look at people uh, who view design, when we look at how people view design, uh, and not only even just design, but actually all kinds of creative work, people tend to view it from different frames, even though in order to be able to work and create together, we always require the shared frame in which we can communicate. We require some kind of common ground where we can operate together. But for example, what I mean is that some people, when they talk about design, as you just mentioned, they understand it from a perspective, from a frame of appearance and cosmetics and uh, trying to add value through how it looks and uh, through exclusivity and so on. For some people, design is about craftsmanship. Uh, and this is what I like to call the 
tactical perspective it's what it's that the uh, the notion that the execution and the quality is what matters so from this perspective for example uh, someone might judge the work and the success of a designer based on her hands-on skills and the quality of the objects or artifacts uh, that she makes personally with your hands uh, and there are other frames like the frame of business for example where People talk about uh, being user-centered or understanding customers or creating value for stakeholders when they talk about design. Another frame is a more uh, kind of scholarly or philosophical perspective where the vision and sophisticated thinking that underlies the work might be more valuable. Uh, so not just the physical excellence of, of an artwork itself, but what the, the, the sort of thoughts that led to it. My impression is that the most successful or impactful or interesting projects or even people are those who adopt and utilize multiple frames. And my impression of you, Hakan, is that you are one of those individuals. And when I look at your projects, I see that expansive frame or I see multiple frames being utilized at once. I see or I feel maybe that you are able to operate from the frame of the craftsman which is evident in the physical and tactical qualities and the style of the things that I see in her portfolio. I feel that you also covered the frame of leadership since you're able to work with so many collaborators and bring so many skills together in your projects. I feel that also you're, even though you don't talk about it as much, I feel that you're comfortable in the frame of business uh, because of your long list of clients and uh, your your success in various creative domains, and you've spoken about working with a lot of record companies, for example, what do you make of this analysis? What's right and what's wrong here? And does it necessarily describe how you, as a practitioner, approach your work? I should mention my my heroes. Uh, of course, there and there are people like you know in in. Art and science, like Leonardo da Vinci, who could, you know, make was a person who was a master at many things at the same time. In his music, is maybe it's a person like um, uh, Miles Davis or Herbert Hancock or someone who is uh, or a Japanese composer called Ryuichi Sakamoto, who is also one that you cannot tell their sounds because it's changing over time all the time. They're exploring all the time, so it's. Um, um, if we talk about like many skill sets or many perspectives from many skills, uh, yeah, of course, these are my heroes. And, um, and maybe it's better to, instead of talking about good design, it's easier to define bad design and, and or like um, design with not enough imagination. I mean, if, if you if you make a table and you see that the purpose of the table is to put your glass on that table, um, then maybe it's not so fantastic. And maybe you, you won't come up with such fantastic design either. But if you if you ask other questions, what it could be, what could it be something if it's upside down? Could it be something in another context? It could it be something else in, in VR? Could it be something for old or something for kids? Could it be something when it's new and something else when it's old? Could it be recycled and be be reshaped into something else? So it's a, it takes much more imagination to think in these scales. And then it becomes difficult, you know, to make a table to put your glass on, that's easy. But to make a table that is many other things at the same time, that's difficult. And we should all strive at making difficult things. And the, the, the better we get, we should, you know, undertake bigger and bigger tasks. 
which is also, again, coming back to the inferior system that we have or the bad design of, uh, of uh, the way we organize ourselves is that you, you learn something and you, then you get lazy because you know how to do it. And that was what happened to me in music, and that's why I quit, because I was pretty good at it. So I got lazy, and I wasn't any good. I was, you know, I, I was mainly fed up with myself, but it's the smart thing to do is, of course, when you're good at something, you keep doing for the rest of your life, and you can you know, save money and play golf. Um, but uh, I think it's, um, it will be mu- it's much better for the humans, to, uh, for any human, to undertake more and more difficult tasks as you, uh, the more you learn. And preferably um, not only within your own skill sets, but in as many skill sets as possible. And also think that, again, I mean, inventors like um, Da Vinci or uh, Tesla or uh, Musk, for that matter, are people that are very good in many, many, um, uh, very many skills, but also had the ability to think uh, if we come back to imagination, that they could really imagine the future. Well, they, Elon can still do that. He's, I read some interview where he said he's, he ma- he's imagining different possible futures like branches on a tree and sort of can see that this is a, this branch, if he, if he was a squirrel, he wouldn't get out on that branch because it might break. It's too thin. But then he go for a thicker branch and then he, but they're all branches. So, you know, launching a electric car company with a, a lot of loss the, the the first years and a lot of broken promises and risk of complete failure and uh, being ridiculed. Um, uh, that is to us who only see today uh, like a, like a dot or like a whatever it is. But if you Elon and you see the future possible futures as branches on a tree, then you know where you are right now, or you might end up in the future. But um, and you never really know what branch, but you can make some smart moves by, you know, when there's a division, you choose this one because there are more steady branches than if you go that way, they're a bit thinner. So it's uh, the, this this ability to to uh, imagine possible futures that I... Uh, now we're sort of gliding into another topic, but I think, think that is something really interesting that, you know, if you... Um, uh, I mean, if you have a car, it's very good to look at the road because then you know where you're going in the short perspective. But it's also very good to have a map to so know where you're heading. So, uh, so otherwise, you just you know drive around and you might not never come to Göteborg ever because you're just you know taking the wrong, wrong roads. But if you have a map and if you look at the road, everything will be fine. But we we don't have that ability when it comes to time, so we can imagine you know if someone we're playing football and we you know someone is you know, shooting the ball a few meters ahead of me, I can estimate that I run there and then I kick the ball to my fellow player and he or she will score the goal. But that's a very short future. Um, and that is pretty much what we can imagine. But I do think that it would be possible for to train the same, the Elon Musk skill set. So we can imagine different possible futures from probabilities. And if that becomes a, if that becomes a habit, then I think it will be much better us humans who will be much better equipped for the future. It's very interesting to discuss this kind of philosophy with you. I'm wondering, is there a book uh, that you recommend frequently to 
people you work with. Uh, and if it's not a book, it could be a podcast or website or YouTube or anything, any kind of resource. I don't know. I think the, the only book that I've been recommended recently is, uh, is probably what's called Sapiens uh, Brief History oh, yeah. of Humankind by Yuval uh, Noval Harari. It's, uh, you find it in every bookshop. But it's, uh, it's well, a lot of your listeners probably uh, know him as an Israeli historian, but he's very clear-sighted when it comes to uh, looking at the history and in his more recent books, uh, talking about possible futures. I'm not saying that it's unique, but it's this sort of um, this very clear-sighted uh, way of explaining things that are very impressive. So that's that's a great inspiration. Yeah, Sapiens is amazing. I think it should be part of, uh, you know, it, all kinds of like general mandatory education. I think it should be uh, taught in schools that that is a very extremely intelligent way of like looking at history and what we can learn from it. What are what about some places and tools that you spend your time with when you're working? Like, where does your work happen? And what are you exactly doing with your hands when you're, quote unquote, working? Yeah, unfortunately, like everyone who's, uh, I mean, I'm surrounded by, by creative people here who do different cool things. But like me, they probably spend most time with the pro- program called Mail, you know, <laughs> communicating with others. So that's, it, it, that is the, the most important tool. Um, for me, my, my tools are, uh, except when I, you know, have this uh, workshop where I build things with my hand. Um, so my main tools are Photoshop to make uh, like dummies of ideas um, uh, and mail, of course, and um, film editing program. Final Cut is the one I have. Um, and uh, Logic for making sounds or Reason. Uh, not Reason, sorry. A uh, program, program called Live, so to making sounds and stuff. Um, this tool that I'm using right now to record myself um and pen and paper also use a lot of lego uh for sketches and and ideas i'm curious about the lego part because i've talked to people before about the subject and none of them mentioned lego do you have any examples nearby that you can just like show on the on the camera of what that looks like um yeah i can do that hold on mm-hmm so here is a, it's a game oh, wow. prototype, which is really good to uh, do with the Lego because it's, um, yeah, it's uh, if you make something, if I make a mistake, then it's very easy to change. Um, I have like boxes of all different uh, cover Lego. The robot wasn't attached to it, but it's sort of stuck here with its suction feet. Um, um, I, I, I mean, I, I need to, to disconnect and move the move things around in order to show the rest. But I use it a lot for, you know, making quick prototypes and to, um, uh, and also have, uh, as this this whole office is built on the same units, which is seventy-five by seventy-five. It's like a, the, the well, the standard shape in Minecraft. So it's a similar thing, uh, or in Lego for that matter. Um, I have uh, over here, I have a, a, a plate that is 75 by 75, but Lego, which I can use as an office space to, you know, attach things, maybe put my laptop or make um, 
you know models of whatever but i also have it on a on a vertical mode and then i can i can use it as a projection mapping thing for lego which is nice uh, or as a calendar or uh, make different paintings um, or messages or whatever but it's something very nice about this ability to to have things in different orientations have it, uh, i can have a lego roof in this um, office thing of mine it also has a little ceiling so i can have a uh, Lego in, in the ceiling, what, whatever that might be good for, I don't know. But if you don't do it, uh, you will never find out. So that's, that's a, I think that's a very good point. If you can easily, in a system like this, if you can easily try even very silly ideas, then you likely will come up with the answer that, yeah, that was a bad idea. But uh, you never know, maybe come up with something that is really good. I'm really tempted to like go to the toy store right now and just buy some Legos and play with them. <laughs> yeah, or go to uh, Block just to buy it secondhand because it's very expensive with new Lego. Oh yeah, that's a that's a good mm. that's a good idea. Then you um, wash it in the in the uh, in the dishwasher, then it's good. Oh, as Oh nice, yeah. that's that's very cool. You are the uh, maybe do do you? I know that you teach and give talks and so on. Have you given any talks or anything that is like specific to how to prototype with Legos or creative ways of using Lego or something? No, not really. To be honest, that's uh, that's a talk I, I, that I would like to hear. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm no Lego master. I just I, I like it because it's very. I really like the feel of it. Um, um, but um, and I like the look look of it. But uh, most of all, I like the very idea that is uh, because it is uh, maybe in competition with Rubik's Cube is still like the best toy ever invented because it's whatever you want it to be. And uh, I mean, that is if, if you try, try to solve problems, uh, one method could be, I mean, it's very established. What would be like Airbnb for something else? The uh, Uber of uh, uh, I don't know, um, furniture making or the Airbnb of, uh, you know, you have some medicine um, and then you it makes you think in, in different paths. But also if you think well, what would be the Lego of uh, bicycles or would be the Lego of a uh, university? And, the, you know, it's a good question. Something that is not fixed in a structure, but something that can be rebuilt until you're happy. That's a very interesting idea. Uh, I'd I'd like to get back to that idea in the future. I mean, there's there's so much that I'd like to discuss with you in depth. This the subject of Lego and about music and so on. So so I'd like to cover those in a in a later date if you allow me. Yeah, there's still uh, But still on the subject of Lego and on the subject of mail, I have two questions that kind of relate to those things, which is the the tools and the communication. So first about the tools. Is there something that you bought recently for, let's say, a hundred dollars or a thousand crowns or less, that had a great positive impact on your work? I bought the synthesizer recently. That makes me happy. <laughs> um, so, no, no. which synthesizer was no, that? It's a small modular synthesizer. Looks like this. Oh, cool. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, all right. That's very cool. Yeah. What, what is the 
is, I, mean, I'm, I, I think modulars are like known to be quite expensive. Is this sort of a cheaper It's modular? a performance version, yes. It's what from is a it? Swedish company called Teenage, Enge Teenage Engineering. Who uh, oh, make a very nice. beautiful, not always uh, for a musician, maybe not the most fantastic uh, synthesizers they are, but um, they are uh, very, very nicely designed and they have uh, a level of um, maybe philosophy um, mm. underneath them that is, uh, makes them really, really beautiful. Yeah, um, they, they make a lot of really good instruments. It's very interesting that in Sweden, uh, there are companies that make really good electronic music instruments. Teenage Engineering is one of them. Uh, Propellerhead, like you mentioned, the software company that makes Reason, which was one of one of the most exciting software programs that I've ever used. I, I used to play a lot with it when I was a teenager. And uh, in Gothenburg, we have Electron, who, in my opinion, makes some of the best drum machines in the world. They're they're amazing. Is there something in Sweden that uh, kind of supports this kind of this kind of business or you know making musical instruments for some reason is there something special here that makes them successful well it's a complicated answer actually i made a documentary film uh, a few years ago for swedish television called power to the people or ström åt folket uh, which is a history of swedish electronic music from the very beginning in 1953 um, until 2000 13 when the film was released um, wow. and one section film is about Swedish synthesizers or Swedish music technology so it's a kind of complicated answer but it's a combination of the relative openness uh, in Sweden and more collaboration than competition maybe uh, or, uh, on top of a long history of uh, engineering skills of course so it's the sort of serious engineering skills and our ability to be structured, but also that we're pretty good at uh, international marketing. If uh, a market is too small for Sweden, then we're good at doing market that is that works for the whole world. And that is pretty much the history of, of the Swedish musical wonder that we, Sweden has not, unfortunately, not invented one single musical genre, but we have commercialized and, and sort of taking so many musical genres and make them um, interesting for people all over the world. And that is our super skill. Uh, synthesizers, I don't know, because I think all Swedish synthesizers right now are very nerdy. They're very specialized in engineering and their design and their sort of quirky architecture, electron, because they are a very good instrument. They're for pros. So they are a bit more in the expensive segment maybe so on the other topic then which is um male communication uh, or collaboration which you also mentioned in the context of music and sweden's success in musical instruments and also musical composition and performance the music industry i guess can you think about your favorite collaborator a person and it can be one person or it can be an amalgam or of two or three people. And you don't have to give their name, although you can if you want to. When you imagine this person that you enjoy collaborating with the most, how would you describe the qualities and skills and personality of this person? I mean, I mean, pretty much all projects that I do, I make it in collaboration with someone else. Um, and here, I, you know, work on the, with the people that I like and respect the most. So uh, if I 
uh, don't mention any names, but uh, one person that I made tons of project with, um, I re really, really appreciate to, to be able to have a, a discussion that is only based on ideas, like what if, you know, uh, you come out and, and have discussions that there is no uh, limit how nerdy it can be or how far out it can be. Um, completely losing the practical side of things, but it's a wonderful way to to communicate, to, uh, you know, sort of uh, encourage each other to to f fill in and create, um, uh, maybe initially pointless ideas, but ideas that in the discussion could prove to be really useful. Um, and um, well, I have these colleagues, for example, we were discussing technology to uh, a pitch recognition system. And it was, uh, you know, something that we did quite a few years ago. But the systems that recognize the pitch of something. And you think that all oh, that, that will be used for um, maybe instead of having a keyboard in a music software, you sing the melody and it will come up uh, as musical notes. And of course, that's a cool thing. Or you have someone, you know, automatic uh, singing out of tune detection or something like that. But then in that discussion, we it became an architectural uh, project instead that we actually have implemented in many places in, in Sweden and other countries as well. We call the singing tunnels, uh, which is a system that if you just sing a note, uh, the system will know the melodies, uh, the, the, key, the, the notes in this melody that sing and sing back, uh, sort of imitate you, sing the same song back with a pre-recorded voice of an angel. And if you mount these in pedestrian tunnels, which are regarded as the most uh, hated and unsafe places in the urban infrastructure, you get the, a system that where the previously like dead concrete that seemed really cold and hostile um, suddenly becomes, uh, it listens to you. It knows that it's scary to go through this tunnel. So it sings back, uh, and you know, singing is something when you know when parents sing to the kids, is something that is very or we are afraid to go to the dentist. So we sing to ourselves to comfort ourselves. So singing is very, very strongly connected with the comfort. Um, but then this idea, you know, started in one end, and after just having a conversation about it, what if we use it in this context? Then we then it's good for something completely different. It's not a music software thing. It's actually urban planning, and it's in one way it's a smart city. Uh, it becomes also a starting point for a discussion of a possible future smart city, which is not that you can you know read about uh, pollen levels or pollution in your app or what uh, trash bin to go to that is not full, which is kind of pointless, but um, um, all these things that we think is a smart city, maybe, you know, I'm not saying that uh, reducing energy consumption or traffic jams is a bad thing. Of course it's not, but it's, if you go into a smart city, it looks like any city. You can't really see it, uh, what the difference is. But what if the buildings themselves were uh, communicating with the citizens uh, in different ways? Um, like, you know, all the very first Mickey Mouse cartoons where they dance with him and stuff like that. I'm, I don't think we will see that in a close future. Maybe it's not a good idea uh, in the first place, but uh, uh, buildings that actually communicate with the building, with the citizens. Um, and in that context, 
again, this little idea about what can we do with the pitch recognizing system. Uh, it goes from like a technical discussion to an installation that has to do with urban planning, but then it also becomes a part of a, uh, like a starting point of a way of looking at the smart city. Singing tunnels. Singing tunnels. I think I've been through one of those in Gothenburg. Is that possible? There was one, but it wasn't actually singing, but there was one in Tynered in the, um, in a suburb. Uh, but uh, it was more like a small individual motion sensors that were triggered, that were placed in the ceiling. And when people passed, they would play different musical notes. But that's also a nice example that, uh, um, that there was actually, there wasn't any studies conducted, but I met uh, people living in the neighborhood who, before this tunnel was sort of uh, uh, provided with these uh, interactive features, this father said that he uh, he was really upset because he this sort of criminal young people was selling drugs in, in the tunnel that was splitting Tunered into two parts. So his kids could not go. They didn't dare to visit their friends in the evenings because they it was uh, too scary and maybe dangerous even. But when this was installed, the, the nasty guys, they went somewhere else. But they at least they left the tunnel. So he was happy for a while. I don't know what things are now, but it makes a difference because nasty people want to be at nasty places. And when a place comes nice, they go someplace else. Interesting. So in your in your collaborators, you, I guess, value what people would call divergent thinking, where you can start with one concept and from that you can end up with a whole other concept and uh, do, do very creative work in this way. Uh, which brings me to another thing I wanted to ask you which follows from divergence, I guess, which is that sometimes, you know, if we diverge too much from certain goals or certain motivations, then we, we fail. Uh, and you've also mentioned about failure and how we should be allowing failure or viewing it more positively uh, in order to support creative work. So in your own career, in your own work history, has there been a failure or apparent failure which set you up for success? Like, do you have a favorite failure, for example? I wouldn't say that because uh, when it comes to art, the failure is just another art. You know, even Or it could be that something that is not supposed to be art, but it fails. And then oh, at least it could be, become art. Um, no, so I, I wouldn't say that. Of course, there has been some insights uh, due to mistakes that um, that could be interesting, um, uh, and it also makes the process very different. Uh, for me, example, if sometimes I ask for funding, um, and sometimes when they when it's art funding, normally you're allowed to have kind of fluffy descriptions, and as long as you give a decent report, what happened afterwards, because the people that are in those who actually decide who get who will get the fundings are they know the process. But sometimes when I've been more into uh, you know uh, asking for funding that are more either academic or uh, more business oriented, it's it, it makes me. Uh, really mad every time because it's uh, it's terrible to to fill these forms. Um, you know, if I apply for something uh, for a project that is, I don't know what it's going to be. I have an idea that it will be really good. It hasn't been done before, and I don't have a clue how long time it will take. Uh, I can maybe estimate how much it will cost in in technology, 
and rent and uh, traveling maybe. But it's impossible for me to to know uh, uh, what the project will, uh, how it, it will evolve. And it might even be that in the end, it doesn't become what I was uh, planning, it becomes something else that is maybe even nicer. Um, so that process fits very poorly with the sort of industrial model. And it's, uh, I think it's as stupid to, you know, to if one would have asked Picasso, you know, you're applying for some arts grant here and you, you say you're going to develop cubism. So how long is it going to take? How many months? And uh, are you, do you need some travel to develop this thing? Because it doesn't happen like that. He, you know, he meets some other artists, they get drunk, they, he paints and he gets depressed and he forgets eating and, and suddenly there's cubism. It's another completely different uh, process. Um, and no one would accuse uh, Picasso of being a lazy bum because he was working hard to come up with this. Um, and there is something very valuable about this process that is uh, that you never see in like industrial or academic projects because they all have to be uh, measured and validated. Um, uh, it's a pity. I wish there would be a way to work with engineering just like cubism. Well, I really, I really think your uh, your your way of working and thinking is really interesting. Certainly, I mean, we've we've certainly learned a lot from you, uh, and I I'm really curious to see what else I will learn from you in the future. I'm wondering who you look up to and who you enjoy learning from. Are there any other people uh, or groups of people that you follow and uh, you sort of investigate to inform your own work? I don't know. I mean, I'm not the kind of person who subscribes to tons of uh, YouTube channels or Twitter accounts or anything like that. So... Um, uh, it, it, it's um, it's more that I, you know, I when I'm interested in something, I Google around and see what I can find that might be inspiring. And I'm also pretty bad with remembering names and and uh, stuff like that. Um, in music, you know, when I was that was my main focus for quite a few years. And pe people said, "Do you know this record by this this guy?" No. Never heard it. I mean, but it's like number one on the charts. No, never heard it. Because I'm not, I'm, I guess I'm absorbed by myself or, you know, the projects that I'm working with myself. So I'm, and maybe that's a good thing because you could end up, um, if you have a deep knowledge of what everyone else is doing, then you, you sort of censor yourself that I can't do that because this team is doing the same thing or I, this has already been done. It's, it's if you, the equation is that if you think within the frames that you are given, uh, it's almost impossible to find a new idea to build on because they, the world is so big and it's information is traveled so fast, you will never find it. Um, and, and you will never find the new ideas by doing things the way you're told. You also have to uh, abuse the equipment or to think backward or I'm not even sure that the methodology to think different uh, like non-linear thinking games and stuff like that to my experience you end up with the same ideas again that, that which are th things that you have seen um, back to Elon Musk's branch of possible future tree um, that is uh, that is another perspective that I think that almost none of us have, but
but I think in potentially we could have it. We talked about including our favorite Israeli historian. He's talking about the the shift in humans when we have AI as a thinking partner uh, or access to big data and interpretation with some help to interpret big data. And it's a huge difference from uh, when the human could only see, we could only see what we could read in books or what we saw around us. That was pretty much it. And maybe we can see it in better ways now. But now we... We have Zoom. We have like some. Uh, we have a, 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 a this possibility to see visualizations of, of very complex things uh, happening over a very long time or over very long space, very big space. So we have a unique op- opportunity to to understand th- understand the world, and again, not like. Roman soldiers marching in a cube, more like starlings flying in an ever-changing blob. To think in, think think about the future in probabilities um, uh, and and possibilities instead of sort of versions of what already seen, but with some cliche layer of laser and hologram on top of it. Um, so I, I I have this feeling that if I would meet, if I could travel 50 years ahead in time, I think it will be difficult for me to understand those people. And I think I will be regarded as some some very primitive person that you couldn't even speak to because I will be shockingly unflexible in my way of thinking. I think that the way of this sort of dynamic way of thinking, this non, well, call it non-linear or like dynamic way of thinking, is something that we need to uh, inherit. And we, I mean, humans have uh, evolved enormously over only 10,000 years from hunter-gatherer to what we are now. And I think that we will be completely different. I mean, just the fact that we have one more sense and we, there was, what was released, 2007, we have a completely new sense that is in many ways superior to all our other senses. And we are the only creature on the planet that have this sense. That we a can computer, connect us a all. smartphone, you mean? This internet in our pocket, and and yeah. again, I mean, this interface to have this little screen that is my window to internet is really bad. But the, we are there are better interfaces coming up. But the, the fact that we actually have this access is um, makes us a new species. Um, and again, I think it will be very difficult for for people in the future to uh, to even imagine how stupid we are today. That was really inspiring to me, Hakan. Thank you so much. And for our listeners as well, I hope. I could have this conversation for hours with you. Unfortunately, the sun is going to go down and uh, I will not have any light anymore. Uh, So I think I will have to uh, conclude our conversation for now. But I do hope that we'll have a chance to catch up in the future. And hopefully uh, in the future, I hope to visit your space and uh, have a look and maybe share it with our viewers and listeners as well, because I'm super curious how things actually work and how things actually look in the room, T, then. Before we conclude, how can people reach you on the internet? Where where can they go and find out more about your work and you and communicate with you if they want to collaborate or if they want to um, uh, work with you or for you in some way? What are some ways what are some resources that they can go through 
Oh, it's very easy. If you learn to spell my name right and Google, and there <laughs> I am. <laughs> uh, so I'll spell it out for our listeners. It's H-A-K-A-N-L-I-D-B-O. Yeah. And the website is .com and the email is Hakan at before. So it's, uh, and the, the, this space is called Rumtiden. Uh, maybe that's not so easy, but uh, Google Spacetime in Google Translate, uh, Spacetime mm. in Swedish, and you'll find it. <laughs> nice. I will uh, leave those links and those uh, the, the, the correct spellings in the show notes in our webpage and uh, okay, great. descriptions. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for this talk. I hope to see you again very soon. Likewise, it was lovely.